0: This podcast is supported by our friends at Birkenstock Australia. Since 1774, the anatomically shaped Birkenstock footbed has supported foot health and comfort. The traditional Birkenstock footbed reflects a footprint in the sand, bringing you closer to nature, even when walking through the concrete jungle.
1: A lot of people think we need to go to renewables not because energy is depleting, because that's not widely understood, but to solve climate change. But renewables are not solving climate change, they're actually making it worse. Because the global superorganism, which is all of us acting in our own self-interest to maximize profits as individuals, families, small businesses, corporations, nation states, growing profits, tethered to energy, tethered to carbon, we're adding renewables to the global system. And renewables are growing faster than oil, coal and natural gas, but oil, coal and natural gas are still growing. We're using more of them every year. We're not replacing coal, oil and natural gas with renewables, we're adding to everything. So unless we change our economic system, renewables will not solve climate change.
0: Hiya! This is episode two of our mini-series with Nate Hagens, where he and Barry explore the role of energy in our lives and in our economies, and how our short-term thinking around energy, in the past two centuries in particular, is bringing and will continue to bring huge implications. They wrestle with our collective behaviours and thinking, and unpack some of the adaptive solutions and opportunities available for us to work with the circumstances we are in.
2: So today's episode is on energy, money, growth, and technology. You state that we as a culture are energy blind. I think that's probably a good place to start. What does that mean and what are the implications?
1: So in our schools, at our universities, and in the media, we are taught that it's human ingenuity and technology and innovation that is the driver of our wealth and productivity. To a certain extent, that's true. But for the last 150 years, we're adding more primary energy to the human system than the year before in every single year, other than a recession or a war or something like that. Energy enables the physical movement of things energy is primary in nature animals that don't have enough calories don't survive to reproduce or hunt another time etc and the same thing applies to human systems so this is something that our culture is unaware of a barrel of oil contains 5.7 million BTUs of energy, which is 1,700 kilowatt hours of work potential. So you or Danny or Samuel or me working for an entire day will generate 0.6 kilowatt hours worth of energy. So a barrel of oil does effectively 10 years of our physical labor and we pay $70, $80 for that. And the huge disconnect in our economic and financial system is that, oh, a barrel of oil is only worth $70, but it substitutes hundreds of thousands of dollars of human labor. And the reason we don't see that is all we have to do is pay for the cost of extraction. Mother Nature, in tens or hundreds of millions of years of refining and heat and pressure, condensed ancient plankton and diatoms that were under the ocean into this liquid special pixie dust that powers our global economy. We don't pay for the cost of creation nor the cost of pollution, just the cost of extraction. And then we give it to companies and businesses and countries and individuals and they have these profits because they link it with technology and sell at a profit. but. Energy really underpins the modern culture, and this stuff is finite. Oil is found in areas that used to be ancient seabeds and oceans, and we found the best first, and then we found the middle quality stuff, and we're kind of approaching the end of that and now going to the lower quality stuff. There's a lot left, but it's higher cost, both ecological and monetary terms. And we as a culture, Australians, Americans, Europeans, everyone in the world is acting as if this is a bank account and this is our interest. But it's a bank account and we're drawing down the principle and oil depletes and doesn't get renewed on human timescales. So all of the people listening to this program are alive at what might be called the carbon pulse which is a one-time couple-century period where humans are drawing down what is effectively ancient sunlight 10 million times faster than it was trickle-charged by ancient geology processes and formed a, a stock, like a bank account in the Earth. So that's what I mean when we're energy blind, we look at the world and dollar signs and prices and things like that. And we just assume that humans were responsible for all of this wealth bounty. And that is partially true, but it's on the backs of coal, oil, and natural gas, which have enabled a lot of this. So. That was a big deep breath, Barry. (laughs)
2: Yeah, because I've heard you say it before and I know everyone's processing it just hearing you say that now. My brain just goes into fact, okay, we've been an individualist culture in the Western world. Look at me, I achieved all of this and that's how you get status and that's how you get recognised. But we're never told to actually look at how we, individual me, got here. It's because of go back and back and back and back and around and around and around. You know, there's a container, there's a context acknowledging ancient sunlight. It fundamentally charges our world, the pace of our world, the productivity of our world, that growth itself is something we need to rethink. Immediately my brain wants to be like, okay, Nate, what do we need to do? (laughs) How do we reframe? how do we fix this? Mm-hmm. That's my impulse, but I don't know if that's the right place to go next.
1: Well, I hear you. I've been trying to tell this story for 20 years. So I deeply resonate with what you just said and what you're feeling. It's a very common response. My view is we have a lot of very passionate, creative, pro-future people out there trying to help our societies be more sustainable and prepare or embrace a, a different economic and cultural future. But if they don't understand the importance of energy underpinning it all, and the fact that we've built an economic system and institutions and expectations around this will be around for a very long time, then they might not be doing the right interventions, etc. The bottom line is we have consumed beyond our means as a culture for 50 years, and we're papering that over with money. You can create money, but you can't create energy. You can only use more money to extract the energy that you have faster. And so we're in this kicking the can mode, whether in one year or 10 years or 15 years, but sometime relatively soon on a cultural scale we're going to have to make do with less maybe a third less on average could be less could be more than that wow. but that's the future that i see coming i refer to it as the great simplification and i'll spend 1 minute on that as a human society grows we add notes we add relationships we add business transactions across border we have a little letter of credit between someone in sydney and someone in germany And every time we add these new nodes to a system, they require more energy. So as the system grows in complexity, it grows in its need for primary energy. And if primary energy is not available or is much more costly than it has been in the past, the default is we're going to have to simplify. We're going to have to give up some of that built complexity. So that's why I refer to the coming decades as a great simplification. There's two aspects to this. There's, okay, well, why is the energy depleting? And then the other is, well, we have all this alternative energy. We have nuclear fusion, we have solar and wind, we have all this other type of energy. And You need to understand energy properties and why a one BTU is not necessarily equal in what it provides to us as another. So where would you like to go?
2: Well, just to cut in there, if I can simplify the great simplification from what I understand from even our conversations, is that oil, coal, and gas have had a particularly magical quality to them, the horsepower, to take it to super simple, understandable metaphors the heavy lifting they have done we really haven't found a replacement for that if it is nuclear fusion it's decades away so let's not get too excited about magic wands
1: and even if nuclear fusion does exist that's electricity and only 20 percent of the energy services that we get in the world is from electricity There's a lot of other things like transportation and heat and petrochemicals and things like that, that aren't electricity, that are other things. So we could replace a lot of things with nuclear, but not everything.
2: So I think I understand from what you say, the quality of the energy that the thing, oil, coal and gas, provides us is not replicable, like flip the switch, we're now on this new thing that we can carry the system and the GDP and the cultural expectations of how we live, we don't have a platform to jump onto. Like if Twitter goes down, everyone's like, ah, oh, okay, that'll be shit for some. We're okay. We know how still to communicate with each other. We've got other platforms. The energy that the world relies on now qualitatively is going to plummet, if you will, it is going to be noticeably different imminently.
1: It could plummet, but it's more likely to have a slow decline, a little bit less every year. But that's a problem because we've built up this huge amount of financial claims on that reality. Because if you have a dollar in your bank account, whenever you spend that, you will spend it on something that uses energy. No matter anything that in your life that costs money will somewhere in there require energy. So... All the monetary claims in the world, when they are called into existence, are call on energy. Renewables and all these things are viable and they can power a civilization. It's just going to look quite different than the one we have. It's going to be smaller, probably. It's going to be more local and regional instead of six-continent supply chain just in time Delivery of everything. And it probably won't have the assortment and massive availability of goods in our stores that we've become used to.
2: Yeah, I remember like um, there's some famous story, I'm going to paraphrase it really badly, but everyone forgive me, that there was a Russian delegation that came to the US in the 60s or 70s. And they were having all these big conversations about collaboration. And one of the Russian delegates or the president went to an American supermarket and was just frozen in awe at the aisles and aisles of goods and products. And he said, Russia just needs this. Like, we just need this. And then we're all good.
1: That's not true, by the way. Ah. No, that's a true story. But it's not true that that would fix things. First of all, the average American supermarket has 90,000 SKUs. So there's 90,000 different items for sale. And I don't know if you've read, I forgot the author. He wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice which showed that actually having this variety of options on the surface does make us happier because we have all these different flavors of lemonade and all these different fruits and all these different meats and fishes. But actually, people are less happy because of that, because they always feel uncertain that they made the wrong choice. 100%. And yeah, so I think it's Well, I mean it's, I, I, I,
2: it's a good story, right? Because it's the perfect story to hold in this moment where you just said we live at this pace and this consumption and this growth that is powered by sawdust or sunlight, but it hasn't made us happier. It hasn't made us truly wealthier. It's made us monetarily wealthier, some of us more than others, but this simplification as you've said could profoundly make us feel like we're living richer, more meaningful, more grounded, more connected lives. And we can get to that in a minute. But I think that story of the supermarket shelves is a profound one because that is the economy. The economy says we need to compare and compete and just heighten our sense of wanting more, but we're standing in the wrong space, looking at the wrong thing. Because standing in a supermarket aisle going, wow, look at the ingenuity of human beings. I want this. No one's fucking happy in a supermarket. I mean, a little bit. You're happier when you're looking at an alive world, when you're in nature and we're feeling connected and in awe of the beauty of this planet. And actually, the planet is what is traded for those supermarket shelves.
1: (sighs) You and I are happier there, but I think actually a lot of people, unfortunately, in my country, I've never been to Australia, a lot of people are happy in a supermarket uh, (laughs) because it's just unbelievable short-term options for them. And they're not thinking about the impact on ocean acidification or next week even. But let's get back to the fundamentals of, of energy blindness.
2: Yeah, fair enough.
1: Another aspect of it is just the sheer magnitude of how much stuff we use. So, you're right that we've built a culture around this coal, oil, and natural gas that do these heavy lifting tasks for us. A couple hundred years ago, we did those tasks by ourselves or with our draft animals. And now we don't have to do all that. We have these energy helpers that we pay pennies on the dollar for. So, the average American consumes 2,500 calories in our bodies. I would imagine Australia is about the same. But outside of our bodies, we consume over 200,000 calories a day in our energy footprint of the various fossil fuels, et cetera. Australia uses around 10% less per capita as the United States, so pretty much the average Australian consumes 180,000 calories a day when their bodies only need 2,500 calories a day. So we have this enormous energy and material footprint that, at least in my country, has not been making us happier or healthier. That's the travesty of all this, is we're turning billions of barrels of ancient sunlight into microliters of dopamine, and we don't have a lot to show for it. And so it's my hope that we have this cultural awakening, this consciousness, where we've used our first two wishes and we have one left because any alternative energy future with a different sort of economic outcome, we're gonna to need to pull those fossil fuels and direct them towards some new infrastructure, some new way of living, because we can't just continue the Disneylandification of our economic system, and then at the same time build a new system, because that new system's gonna need a lot of energy and materials and governance and effort.
2: So- everything in me wants to go, Nate, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from here to there? But I understand that this conversation we need to have is about understanding what here is actually, what it looks like. So I'm wondering if the best place from here is to talk about how energy and technology interrelate.
1: Yeah, sure. So when we have a product or a good or service in the world, it needs four things for sure. Number one, is it has an idea from a human or a group of humans and they invent something and then they combine energy and materials into a product and the product is measured by dollars or yen or euros or whatever. Every single item has those four things, money, technology, energy, and materials. Energy is 99% correlated with economic output. Materials, Are 100% correlated with economic output. If we double the growth in the world, we will double the use of materials like sand and concrete and wood and steel and copper and lithium and other things. So technology acts as a vector to use more energy next period. There are some inventions, there are some technologies that enable humans to use energy more efficiently, like a power plant can get more power from using the same amount of coal because we got more clever on the process. Or we can invent a new technology like a solar panel or a more efficient geothermal system. But those types of technology are a tiny, tiny piece of all the technology. The vast amount of other technology is inventing things that humans used to do manually, but now we do with machines like a chainsaw or a car, or there are things that humans never had before, like Facebook or Twitter or a flat screen TV. And all those things, all that new technology requires energy. So there's this illusion in our society that, oh, we'll just invent our way out of it. But our inventions end up requiring more energy in the total system than last year. So technology, is kind of in this race with energy depletion, which we haven't talked about yet. But as we have less energy every year, which I think is coming in the very near future, what will technology do for us then? And so then this brings up a question of appropriate technology. Do we want things that are hovering cars or virtual reality things, or do we want cheap batteries made out of sodium instead of lithium that allow us to store energy the whole appropriate technology question i think is an important one what is the type of technology we need for the coming century
2: but i think this conversation and seeding this in everyone who's listening the point of this is just to get our culture and our consciousness collectively and individually around the awareness that we're in the depletion part of the curve the magical energy sources that we have. We constructed an entire world system and economy and everything about our lives, our GDP, is toggled to the power and the quality of those energy sources. The outcome has been we've destroyed the natural world. We're in the process of destroying the natural world with burning all those things to gain all the things we gained and now we're in the pivot. We're hospicing an old system to hopefully bridge and midwife a new system. But there's a core piece of understanding that that energy source is on the depletion part of the curve and we are sliding down on a toboggan with it. And therefore, we need to be very discerning what we say yes to from here to ensure that it doesn't just help us with our dopamine fix in this moment. Everything's going to be okay here. Have a cookie, have an iPad, go on holidays. Because I think I wrote here a vast amount of tech is to invent interventions, like you said. And then I wrote, or distractions. Like I think we're just in this moment of wanting tech to tell us everything's going to be all right, solve all the problems, but we aren't even agreeing on what the problems are that we need to solve for. And when you say we genuinely look in the mirror and look at this moment and say we have to, understand that this pot of gold is at the bottom. How are we collectively going to spend it? That opens up, of course, a Pandora's box of priorities. And how do we as a collective define those priorities once we've even acknowledged that this magical thing is on its way to its end? I think we know the first bit, which is when we burn it, it fucks with our atmosphere and it pollutes everything. So we know that bit, but I don't think anyone's having the conversation other than you that it's actually nearly finished.
1: Oh, well, it's not nearly finished and there are a lot of people having this conversation. So you're right, when we burn it, it has both a CO2 impact and a chemical impact. The chemical impacts from burning fossil fuels are something that a lot of people are starting to figure out, but we're gonna talk about that in the next episode. When we burn it, there's an impact. When we burn it, it's gone. That's something we don't talk about much. (laughs) When we burn it, we can't burn it again. (laughs) And the burning of it powers our economic system. Every single good that you find in a store in Australia was created somewhere on the planet with a small fire. Everything started with a flame. So as far as the depletion part of the curve, the three main fossil fuels are coal, oil, and natural gas. Australia actually has a lot of coal and natural gas. Coal is still growing, natural gas is still growing. Its oil is the master resource, and that is the one that is starting to decline and decline more rapidly. I'm not an expert on Australia, but I can talk to the United States just to give you an example. So there are more oil wells drilled in the United States than the rest of the world combined. And we've already used the very high quality oil and we've gone to the North Slope of Alaska. We've gone to the Gulf of Mexico. And now the majority of our oil is called shale oil. Shale oil is found in the source rock, which is where all other oil originated. And there's nothing left after that. And when you drill a shale well, the amount of oil you get from it comes out really fast and then 90% of it is gone in the first 18 months. So if the United States, for an environmental reason, for a financial reason, for any reason at all, were to stop all oil drilling today, just let's stop drilling, the amount of oil that we produce as a nation would drop 41% the first year and another 25 or so percent the second year and continue to decline because we have to keep drilling in order to maintain this amount of production. And that's kind of a microcosm for this depletion that we're unaware of. Now, they're going to continue to drill and find new spots, but we are getting to that point where we, uh, you know, what shale oil and fracking has done is not increase the amount of oil there. What it's done is it created a larger straw and we're sucking out of this straw. Since we can't see what we're sucking from, we don't know when we're near the bottom until we hear that slurping sound. And at some point in the next decade, there's going to be that slurping sound when we get to the lower amount of oil resource. And there's oil all over the world, in Russia and Saudi Arabia and other places. But it's the dependence on oil growing and being affordable, which has happened the last 50 years, that's going to change and that's going to change our global commercial system. And we talked last time about Australia being at the end of the supply chain and you have these ships come powered with bunker fuel, which comes from oil, with all these products from around the world, if oil got two or three times more expensive, that would change the whole global transportation system and affordability and other things. So one of the implications with a different energy regime as we deplete is going to be hyper local and regional economies that Australia trades with New Zealand and maybe Southeast Asia, but less so with places on the other side of the planet because the transport costs are gonna take up a much larger percentage of the cost of the item.
2: Um, So, where do we get our energy from? And I think I can hear naysayers in my mind being like, yeah, but we'll find it somewhere. It's all good. Nothing needs to change. Everybody relax. We'll find it somewhere else. Yada, yada. There's always that. But on the horizon is that big fix for this shitty situation.
1: Yeah. So, I have a master's in business and finance from one of the best business schools in the world. And in the two years I was there, they never mentioned the word energy once. Everything has a monetary lens and energy and a biophysical view of the world is just not part of that story. An economist would strongly disagree with everything I'm telling you, because if something is truly scarce, the price will go up so high that we will invent alternatives to it. But we can't create more energy. We can create technology that harnesses the energy of the sun or the wind or deep under the earth, but that has a cost, not only in dollar terms, but in energy terms. And what's going to happen, Barry, in coming decades is 1999, we hit a seventh century low of how much. Energy our society had to spend on getting energy to the rest of society. It was around 5%. So, all the energy we used in 1999, we spent 5% of that on discovering, extracting, refining, and delivering the energy to all the other sectors of society. So, we had 95% of our energy left for libraries and hospitals and shopping centers and everything. Well, now that's up to around 10% and it's increasing. Okay. So we're spending more and more of our energy itself in order to get energy. And eventually that's going to go to 20%. Okay. So,
2: okay. Okay. I get it. I get it. This is good. This is a good way to understand the donut or the pie. Like it used to be that we would spend 60% of our salaries on food because people ate well and cooked at home. And that was a priority. But those household expenses and country expenses shift. Did you see that in the last two weeks, the Australian prime minister capped the gas prices? Did you see that piece of news?
1: I didn't, but that's happening all over Europe and other places. I just did a podcast last week with my friend Nora Bateson in Sweden. This is partially because they had a nuclear plant shut down. Electricity prices are 30 times higher than they were two months ago. Not three times, 30 times. And people are turning off items in their houses. Okay. Like they're huddling in a single room. Everyone's in a single room and they're wearing heavy clothing because they need to stay warm. And this is indirectly because of the Russia Ukraine situation, which I would argue, for better or worse, has caused society to become less energy blind. Yeah. Because people are suddenly aware of how fundamental energy is, and how a country like Germany that went all in on solar and wind as a national strategy, that without natural gas to pair that as a backup, it leaves them very vulnerable. So that's another okay, implication. So, yeah.
2: yeah. so I'd love you to talk to that because can't we just switch to renewables and all this stuff?
1: No, we cannot switch to renewables and keep this society going for several reasons. First of all, the vast majority of the renewables, geothermal, solar, wind produce electricity. And as I said earlier, only 20% of our energy consumption globally is electric. We can change some of the things that into electric, but not everything. You're not going to run a international giant ship on electricity.
2: Why not? What do you mean when you say that? Is it not as qualitatively powerful or?
1: Yes, that's it. It's the energy density of crude oil is unbelievable. So the energy density is how much energy is in a volume size of energy. Fossil fuels are potential energy, which means they are sitting there stored until we burn them. And renewables are kinetic energy. They're in motion, these electrons. And if you don't use the electrons right then, then it dissipates and goes away. So it's like really high energy quality stuff, natural gas and oil. Coal less so, wood even less so. Coal is more energy dense than wood. and For the longest time, we used wood as the primary energy source for humans. So the second big problem with renewables is that they're intermittent. So obviously, solar is great when it's sunny out. It's not sunny out at nighttime. Wind is great when it's windy. It's not great when there is no wind. And so, in order to offset that, we have to have backup or a battery. And a backup and a battery adds cost to the whole system. And a lot of the very Panglossian stories about renewables in the future have batteries that only have like six hours. But sometimes you go weeks or even a month without wind. So we're gonna need big ass batteries if we wanna live the way that we live now. But here's the thing: humans ultimately, we don't need base load because we are base load. Our human bodies going around and doing things, we are baseload. So part of the problem with renewables is we think that we have to create this energy to match the current 24-7 Uber consumption. 87 SKUs in a grocery store sort of life, and that's not going to pan out, but we can use renewables. Renewables are unbelievably mature and awesome and relatively inexpensive relative to energy of the past. They just can't provide what fossil fuels can provide. Another challenge with renewables though, and one that my Australian colleague, Simon Michaud, has been working on is they're very, very material intensive. And if we were to scale solar and wind to the size that many people are talking about would be needed to get off of fossil fuels, we would need orders of magnitude more copper, lithium, cobalt, rare earth minerals, things like that. These things are also in short supply and they're also in countries in the global south that are enduring climate impacts and other things. And I just don't think we're going to be able to scale them to that level. There are constraints there. So
2: the obvious next question that I would ask, but I think we're coming to the end of this bit of the five-part conversation. What I'm hunting for is barometer of that discernment. How do we get with the program about the reality of our energy resources for this next decade, which we all know is an incredibly important decade? How do those people listening to this in Australia and the world take that bit of information in and then have the discernment to help prioritize in whatever field they're in. Like if you're in the military, if you're in an energy corporation, if you are the mayor of a small municipality, if you are whatever you are and wherever you are, how do we begin to both maturely process that awareness that the quality of our energy is on the depletion side of the curve? We cannot replace it fast enough because of all these other resources that will be affected by supply chains and climate, etc. It's a huge paradigm shift because like you said, energy is toggled to the GDP. So we really have to untoggle ourselves from a lot of those measures of success and healthy societies and then reprioritize and say to our governments, hey, don't spend our precious gas, coal and oil on that shit you're spending it on over there, spend it over here. And this is like a really fast learning curve where we've got to be like, okay, what does that piece of information mean for our priorities? So I'd like you to talk to that discernment and maybe also, yeah, what do we need to understand about energy in the future just as we round up this bit of the conversation?
1: Yeah. I want to say one more thing about renewables A lot of people think we need to go to renewables, not because energy is depleting, because that's not widely understood, but to solve climate change. But renewables are not solving climate change. They're actually making it worse because the global superorganism, which is all of us acting in our own self-interest to maximize profits as individuals, families, small businesses, corporations, nation states, growing profits, tethered to energy, tethered to carbon, we're adding renewables to the global system and renewables are growing faster than oil, coal, and natural gas, but oil, coal, and natural gas are still growing. We're using more of them every year. We're not replacing coal, oil, and natural gas with renewables. We're adding to everything. So unless we change our economic system, renewables will not solve climate change. That's one point. And then to answer your question, what do we need to know about the future? We need to know that energy and GDP are and will remain tightly linked. But energy and human well-being and how we enjoy our lives are not necessarily tightly linked. That if we have no energy at all, we are going to have a very bad time. But if we go from a little to a medium amount, we get massive increases in human development and well-being. But from a medium to a high amount, we just are spinning our wheels. We're not getting a lot of incremental benefits, not as individuals, nor as nations, nor as a society. So you're right. We have to discern what are the best uses of more costly, perhaps less available at times energy. And the challenge there of course is The story that I'm telling you here is not going to be on the Australian Evening News, nor on the famous people talking about it online. This is like looking two or three steps ahead, and so I personally think, and we'll get to this in one of our next episodes. We need to have individuals and organizations act as pilots of living not a draconianly less, but a lower energy and material throughput future. Yes, and discerning around that because the cultural narrative, Barry, is that humans in the future will be richer and have more options than we do. And this is not true. Um, energy is underpinned this anomaly in our human experience and future humans will have less energy and materials, not to mention a probably l- lower uh, environmental carrying capacity. And so how do we prioritize the time we have now to come up with different ways of living that don't use as much energy and materials?
2: I mean, it seems like to me, the answer to that is going to be in really hyper localized community living where we all get back to being dependent on each other. I love hunting for the reality of this moment and then going, okay, well, like, let's contend with that. The more we know, the more we know, and it's a good thing. And so for me, even this conversation and thinking straight away, my mind goes to, okay, well, what is the most useful policy environment that we need at a municipal level, at a localized level? Like, what do we need to unlock and empower for communities to start to solve for what you just said now? where we are more dependent on one another than we are on hyper energy use. I don't know. It's like a detangling and a reweaving of how we roll, where we can live richer, deeper lives connected to each other and less addicted to high energy consumption as the thing that makes us feel better about our life.
1: You and I are totally aligned on that. I know you would like your listeners to go bunta on the great simplification, (laughs) but you know this story a lot better and deeper than your listeners do. So I had wanted to just lay out energy is freaking important to our economies. Our economists conflate the dollar value of energy with the work value of energy. And that's a really key point. We underpay. For what enables us and gives us. And it's not permanent, it's going away. It's going away gradually, but even a small reduction will change prices and availability. And energy has different properties and you can't just plug and play a solar panel to replace a barrel of oil. There are matching benefits and constraints that come with each energy source. So I just wanted to point out those things as a baseline because I know in the next episode, we're going to talk about the environment and ecology. And then we're going to conclude where you're going to have all kinds of creative ideas on policy and what where do we go. But here's the thing, you're absolutely right. If we didn't discern those things I just mentioned about the importance of energy, we might have some different policy recommendations than, than we're going to come up with.
2: And the one thing that we didn't go into because we don't have the time right now, everyone wants us to have that conversation. We can just have a whole conversation about the money bit, how that conflation and that incorrect dollar value, how the economy can't accommodate for the reality. Like all these financial instruments really fuck with our minds and our reality.
1: I'll just do 30 seconds on that. So we have financialized the human experience. We treat everything in dollars or euros or yen. We create more money every year, and every time we create money, we don't create more oil or lithium or copper or dolphins. And so the stretch between the monetary claims on our reality and our actual biophysical reality gets wider and wider every year, and that can't continue to widen. So eventually, there are too many monetary claims for the economic and energy future that we're facing, And that's an issue. So we're going to have to prepare for that. That's a two-hour conversation in 30 seconds.
2: Yeah, I kind of feel like crying.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Barry. No,
2: no, 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 your fault. Why do you apologize? It's just...
1: Well, because, you know why? Because I care about people and nature and animals and the future. And I know that the story that I've spent 20 years putting together is obvious to some people that have been studying along with me, but to people that haven't heard it before, it's a lot to take on board. And I feel a sadness for people listening that are like, what? I never, what? I don't know those people, but I feel responsible for setting them off in a bad mood. And yet at the same time, I think the more people that kind of intuit this and understand how the pieces fit together the more people that can roll up their sleeves and play a role in what's coming.
2: Nate, thank you for your work and thank you for showing up always for this conversation. Everyone, take it in and take it easy to be continued.
0: You can dive deeper into the work of Nate Hagens through his podcast and programs titled The Great Simplification. You can also explore more in our work over at smallgiants.com.au. This podcast has been brought to you by Birkenstock Australia. The footbed is designed to keep you grounded. Find out more at birkenstock.com.au.